Hi, and welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm Harry Stevens, and I'm your host. In this series, we look at the German invasion of the Soviet Union during the Second World War. Today, though, we'll be doing the first of what might be four, not three, episodes of introduction. In this one, we'll be looking at the rise of fascism in Europe, particularly in Germany. In the years following the Treaty of Versailles, which ended the First World War, discontent over the results grew all over Europe. In defeated nations, anger festered over both the loss and resentment that the punitive measures Versailles came with. Even in some of the victorious nations, some were angered that the war had exacted such a heavy toll just to maintain the status quo, while others felt that they, or their countries, had not received what they were promised for their contributions to the war. Two major ideologies gained power from this discontent. Left-wing movements like socialism and communism, and a new far-right-wing movement called fascism. Today we'll focus on fascism, and I plan to cover left-wing movements in the next episode. Giving fascism an exact definition is difficult, but some core features are almost universally present. Fascism seeks to create a dictatorship and to subjugate the individual under the state. Fascists consistently look back to a supposed golden age, typically far beyond living memory, and claim to be recreating this golden age through ultra-nationalism. It promotes militarism and the militarization of culture, and many of its goals are based on a hatred of a group or groups. These groups, who are usually already marginalized, are often racial, ethnic, or religious minorities, and are posed as the opponents of the nation and blocking its success. Order and tradition are upheld above all else, and violence is seen as a moral and good act and encouraged. The first nation in Europe to fall victim to fascism was Italy, and much of the history of Italian fascism can be understood by looking at its leader, Benito Mussolini. Mussolini had begun his political life as a socialist, but was kicked out of the Italian Socialist Party in 1914 for his support of the war. From there, Mussolini theorized that war and struggles between nations could unite an entire country. He came to believe that the power of class struggles, the primary focus of socialism, were insignificant in comparison to the power of wars to unite a population. Throughout the First World War, Mussolini solidified and developed these ideas, gathering followers, including many other disillusioned socialists. Following the Treaty of Versailles, many Italians were enraged that Italy did not receive territory in the Balkans that they believed they were promised. Instead, much of that territory was given to other nations or used to create the nation of Yugoslavia. Mussolini used his discontent to promote his idea of a national regeneration in order to restore what he saw as Italy's destiny, recreating the glory of the Roman Empire. To Mussolini, the Italians were a superior people, and subjugation of groups like Africans, Arabs, and Slavs was natural and just. These ideas began to gain wide support in Italy, among both regular people and wealthy industrialists and landowners. And with this influence, Mussolini's fascists launched a so-called March on Rome. Held on October 27th and 28th of 1932, 30,000 black shirts, members of fascist militias, gathered in Rome to demand the installment of a fascist government. Sufficiently intimidated, the Italian king, Victor Emmanuel III, granted Mussolini the office of prime minister. From there, Mussolini quickly turned Italy into an authoritarian state. By 1923, fascism had taken power in Italy. Further to the north, Germany was also struggling with the rise of fascism. Following Versailles, what would come to be known as the Weimar government took power. This government, named for the city where its constitution was written, Weimar Germany, was to be a parliamentary democracy, similar to that of France or the UK, and would abide by the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, at least on paper. The early years of the Weimar government were fraught. Despite the end of the war, German citizens still suffered many of the same privations. Food, especially meat, was scarce. The weight of reparations proved impossible to pay for the struggling nation. In response, 
Germans defaulted on their debts at several points in the 1920s. French troops, responding to that, occupied the valuable Rhineland province, which was a further national humiliation and economic strain for the German people. Desperate to pay off the debt, the government resorted to printing money nonstop. This created an infamous bout of hyperinflation. For a practical example of this hyperinflation, a loaf of bread in Berlin would run you around 150 mark in late 1922. That same loaf in the same city, less than a year later, would cost you 200 billion marks. Eventually, the situation had gone so far out of hand that the entire currency had to be abandoned completely. A few points about reparations. While they did hurt the Weimar German economy in its early years, Britain and France proved willing to meet and negotiate several times and modify the payment plan. The Treaty of Versailles had initially op required Germany to pay 132 billion gold marks in reparations, but as early as 1921, payments were modified so that only 50 billion of the 132 billion were obligatory. The remaining 82 billion would be paid if Germany could afford to. Moreover, Germany had already paid 9 billion of the 50 billion by 1921. But following German default and hyperinflation in 1922 and 1923, the Dawes Plan reorganized payments again to be more affordable. After that, the Young Plan in 1929 effectively cut German payments in half. Finally, in 1932, the Lausanne Conference indefinitely suspended German reparations. So while it's often said that reparations were a prime factor for the reason the Nazis came to power, this is largely true only in the sense that the Nazi groups were able to use the issue as a rallying cry and a propaganda piece rather than the true inflexibility or damage that the reparations did to Germany, at least past 1922 to 1923. The woes of the early 1920s sparked a series of uprisings. Right-wing groups like paramilitary Freikorps occupied Berlin in March 1920 and temporarily installed their own government. A week later, 50,000 workers in the rural region attempted to form a communist state and were put down by the military and Freikorps groups. Most famously, in 1923, the Nazi party attempted to seize power in Munich in what became known as the Beer Hall Push. With this, we're going to take an off-ramp and look at Hitler and the Nazi party very briefly. Adolf Hitler was born on April 20, 1889 in present-day Austria, at the time Austria-Hungary, but as a young boy, Hitler moved to Germany. From a young age, Hitler was enamored by ideas of German nationalism and despised the multi-ethnic Austro-Hungarian Empire. Once he finished school, he moved to Vienna to pursue art. He wasn't accepted to the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts, but he did receive an education in hatred and anti-Semitism. Many historians, and indeed Hitler himself, claim that Vienna was where he became a committed anti-Semite. Anti-Semitism was common among Germans and German people, but Vienna's mayor was a notorious anti-Semite who incorporated anti-Semitism into his political platform, something the Nazis would later copy very closely. After a few years in Vienna, Hitler moved back to Germany and shortly after joined the Imperial German Army to serve in the First World War. By all accounts, he served honorably and later remarked that war was the greatest experience of his life. Like many in the German military, he was shocked by Germany's surrender in November of 1918 and fully bought into the stab in the back mess. The stab in the back myth is a conspiracy theory which claims that Germany's loss in the First World War had not come from the defeat of her armies in the field, but from the machinations of Jews and Marxists inside Germany who conspired to destroy the country. This is, of course, categorically wrong. If you remember my first podcast, German armies had been thoroughly beaten by the winter of 1918, and the chaos on the home front was a direct result of losses on the battlefield, and not any sort of evil machinations. All the same, the theory was popular. Disillusioned, Hitler returned to Germany angry and confused. In July 1919, still working for the army, Hitler was tasked with infiltrating and monitoring far-right groups. 
Hitler attended meetings of those parties and was taken by many of the ideas presented, namely ethno-nationalism, German superiority, anti-Semitism, militarism, authoritarianism. His speaking skills served him well, and he became a prominent member of the German Workers' Party, which later rechristened itself as the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or NSDAP, whose members would become known as Nazis. Hitler rose through the ranks to become the leader of the party in 1921. He gave public speeches where he agitated against the government, railing against Jews and other supposed enemies of Germany, and he called for rejecting the Treaty of Versailles, as well as capitalism and Marxism. The party grew in power as more frustrated Germans joined, although it remained small and monitored by the Weimar government, who suppressed radical groups. Inspired by Mussolini's march on Rome, and with tensions in Germany at an all-time high after the French occupation of the Rhineland, Hitler decided that it was time to launch an uprising. This would become known as the Beer Hall Push, as we've just discussed. Soon after the push, which was a colossal failure, Hitler was arrested and imprisoned for high treason. He was sentenced to five years for high treason, already the minimum sentence, but ended up serving only about a year. During this time, Hitler composed Mein Kampf, a combination autobiography and manifesto detailing his life, his thoughts, and his general state of mind. Throughout Mein Kampf, Hitler constantly voices paranoid and delusional thoughts, particularly regarding the role of Jews in the world. According to Hitler, Jews were responsible for Germany's defeat in the First World War, responsible for capitalism, responsible for communism, and just about anything else that Hitler thought was a problem at that given moment. While other groups, particularly political factions like liberals and social democrats, were also blamed, as well as racial groups like Romani, mixed-race peoples, and Slavs, all of them were seen as the puppets, the unwitting slaves to the group of evil Jews that ran the world. In Mein Kampf, Hitler also emphasizes his belief in Lebensraum, or living space. For Hitler, this meant that a nation needed a certain amount of space to survive and thrive. For both agricultural and industrial purposes, expansion was an absolute necessity. In Hitler's mind, this coincided with his desire to reunite all ethnic Germans, or Volksdeutsch, under one German state. But his desire for land and expansion was not restricted to areas with primarily German populations, and Hitler looked to areas of like Poland and the USSR as for the taken, as prime Lebensraum. Following the Munich Beer Hall push, the Weimar government cracked down even harder on the Nazi party, and the global economic boom of the 20s finally made its way to Germany, easing many of the material concerns that led people to join the Nazi party. This is reflected in the election results the Nazi party received. In May 1924, the NSDAP received about 6% of total votes. In elections later that year, 1924, and in May of 1928, they received about 3% of votes in each. So, although the Nazis solidified their existing power base during this time and established more sophisticated structures, they failed to gain any large-scale influence. And it would not be until the Great Depression that the Nazi party would be taken out of near irrelevance and plunged into total control. As Germany's economic fortunes turned dire in late 1929 as the Great Depression rolled in, and millions of Germans found themselves unemployed, the anger that the Nazis thrived on returned in force. Nazi support in the parliament, the Reichstag, grew from 2.6% in 1928 to 18.25% in 1930. In 1932, the Nazis cracked well into the 30% range and were able to make serious challenges to dominate the government. After two elections had been unable to form a majority government, the aging president of Germany, Paul Hindenburg, appointed Hitler as chancellor on January 30, 1933. Once Hitler was chancellor, he immediately searched for an opportunity to grow and consolidate his power. Notably, he took advantage of the Reichstag fire. On February 27, 1933, 
someone attempted to burn down their Reichstag and managed to do significant damage to it. The culprit remains unclear. The Nazis arrested, tried, convicted, and executed a Dutch communist named Marinus van der Lebe for the crime, but many historians believe that the attack might have been conducted by the Nazis themselves as an excuse to seize power. Whoever did it, Hitler used it to destroy any and all democracy remaining in Germany. Civil liberties were suspended on the 20th of February. On March 23rd, the Enabling Act was passed, allowing Hitler's cabinet to make laws and policy without parliamentary approval. Later that summer, all other parties were absorbed into the NSDAP or banned, completing Germany's descent into a one-party dictatorship. Hitler still saw threats, though, namely internal threats. The Nazi party was roughly split into two factions, Hitler's group, which was virulently anti-socialist and anti-Marxist, and a group led by Ernst Ruhm, who favored Strasserism, which more embodied the socialist part of national socialism. It was also this group who controlled the Sturmabteilung, or SA, meaning Storm Detachment, it was founded in 1921 to act as security and enforcers for the party, and was largely made up of members of the Freikorps. Loyal to the Strasserist group, it competed with the Schutzstaffel for power. The SS were a competing group to the SA, but were loyal to Hitler's faction. The strength of the SA worried Hitler and his allies, who feared that they might launch a coup to take over the party. Urged on by key advisors Hermann Goering and Heinrich Himmler, Hitler agreed to purge the Strasserists. Together, they plotted the purge, which went something like this. Evidence was manufactured that Ernst Röhm, the leader of the SA, had been paid to overthrow Hitler. Therefore, the purge could later be justified as a preemptive action. Hitler arranged a meeting of many of the major players for the SA for June 30, 1934. There, he ranted against them and accused many of them of treason. SS troops who were laying in wait then came in and arrested hundreds of prominent SA officers and other members of the political opposition. Dozens of these men were shot in the next few hours by SS firing squads, and more were imprisoned or later shot. The most prominent of these killings was of Ernst Röhm himself. Röhm had been an early ally and close friend of Hitler, and Hitler was slightly nervous, if not scared, about killing him. Apparently, in an act of mercy, he gave Röhm the option to shoot himself rather than be shot. Röhm refused, stating defiantly that, if I am to be killed, let Adolf do it himself. Ten minutes later, Rome was shot by an SS officer. The purge would become known as the Night of the Long Knives, and had wider implications outside the Nazi party. The SS took advantage of the chaos to execute and arrest other possible political opposition on the right. Vice Chancellor Franz von Papen, an old-style Catholic conservative, was arrested, while many of his associates were simply shot. The previous German Chancellor, Kurt von Schleicher, was shot along with his wife at their home. All said, the purge ran from June 30th to July 2nd and claimed the lives of at least 85 people, but possible deaths run into the hundreds. The whole affair was legalized post facto under the reasoning that the SA was planning to take over Germany. That several of the leaders of the SA were gay was emphasized to show their supposed evil. The Night of the Long Knives managed to clear up the last significant resistance to Hitler's rule, and they could now focus entirely on their goals for Germany. The first among these goals included massive rearmament and militarization. Following the Treaty of Versailles, Germany's military industry and strength had been limited. The Weimar government had conducted limited remilitarization, signing secret agreements with the USSR to work on tanks and planes and other technologies, but it had always been done clandestinely and in a small capacity as to avoid detection from British and French agents. But Hitler had made his career on denouncing Versailles, and once he got to office, that was the one thing he kept his promise on. He fully rejected it, and massive rearmament and remilitarization were conducted. 
the German military was to be expanded and equipped to give them significant offensive capacity. Another core feature of the Nazi policy, and perhaps what the Nazis were most passionate about, was virulent hatred, particularly regarding Jews and Roma. Prior to gaining power, the Nazis frequently attacked and intimidated Jews and Roma on the streets whenever they could. Now that they had the power of the government, they were able to attack them legally. In 1935, they created the Nuremberg Laws. These forbade intermarriage between ethnic Germans and nearly anyone else, stripped Jews and Roma of their citizenship, and with it any protections they had. Further restrictions would deny other groups the right to work in many professions, own property, or access public services, pretty much cutting them off from society completely. All this was accompanied by the large-scale propaganda that bombarded the German people with messages that Jews, Roma, homosexuals, or political minorities were evil and wanted to destroy Germany. With regards to international policy, Hitler would use the newly rebuilt strength of the German military to make demands that would bring ethnic Germans back into the Reich and demonstrate Germany's strength to the world. The first of these displays came in 1936. On March 7th of that year, Hitler sent the German military into the Rhineland for the first time in over a decade. While part of Germany, the Rhineland had been demilitarized by the Treaty of Versailles, meaning that no troops could pass through it. Although this remilitarization was in direct and clear violation of Versailles, and Britain and France thus had this authority to correct this by force, the two powers merely issued a diplomatic objection. France wished to intervene, but was suffering severe internal political divisions and felt like they needed German agreement to act. Britain, unwilling to risk war, decided not to enforce their prerogative. It's also worth noting that many prominent figures in the UK were more sympathetic to Germany than in France, seeing the terms of the Treaty of Versailles as too harsh. As one Lord Lothian said, the remilitarization of the Rhineland was no more than Germany walking into her own backyard. This way of thinking became a political policy known as appeasement, held by many prominent European politicians and intellectuals who believed that by simply giving Hitler what he wanted, war could be avoided. Speaking of war, we'll take a brief tangent so I can note quickly that although I won't talk about the wars of this period in detail, Europe saw a lot of conflict even after the end of the Russian Civil War. Italy waged colonial wars in Africa to gain control over Libya, Italian Somaliland, and the Horn of Africa. Then, in 1935, Italy went to war with Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia, to avenge Italy's humiliating defeat in the 1895-1896 First Italo-Abyssinian War and to add Abyssinia to Italy's empire. Additionally, both Nazi Germany and Italy sent volunteers to the Spanish Civil War, where a coalition of right-wing military groups attempted to overthrow the government, who was supported by a tentative alliance of liberals and left-wingers. Far to the east, Japan, which had its own authoritarian militaristic government, was invading China yet again. It had taken control of Manchuria in 1931 and invaded the Republic of China in 1937. And many scholars actually consider this, 1937, the true beginning of the Second World War. Emboldened by the lack of resistance to his demands, Hitler set his eyes on his native Austria as Germany's next prize. Austria itself was currently under a fascist dictatorship, and the Nazis had tried and failed to take over the country in 1934. However, Nazi Germany was now far stronger and believed that support within Austria and within Germany for the Nazis was sufficient to allow for the Anschluss, the unification of Germany and Austria under one nation. Throughout 1937-1938, Germany began making threats and demands to Austria for a union of the two countries, and Hitler engaged in talks with his military commanders by the possible invasion of Austria. In response to the threats, Austrian Chancellor Karl Schuschnigg called for a plebiscite in Austria to determine the issue. This only enraged Hitler, who demanded on March 11th 
that Schusseni relinquished power to Austrian Nazis or Germany would invade. In a confusing series of events, the ultimatum was not accepted in time, although Austrian Nazi Arthur Seif Inequart was made chancellor about 12 hours afterwards. But German troops had already been given the orders to invade Austria. But despite this, no blood was shed, because the Austrian army had been instructed not to put up a fight, and German troops were not met with armed resistance with machine guns and tanks, but by throngs of cheering supporters as they walked or drove down the road. Hitler himself visited Vienna on March 15th and received an audience of 200,000 cheering Austrians. A plebiscite was held on April 10th to justify the annexation, and the results showed 99.7% support by voters. Of course, the election was subject to voter disenfranchisement, intimidation, and abstention by the opposition, but for most Austrians, particularly those who were ethnically German, they were happy, or at least not unhappy, to see unification. Beyond the grand rhetoric of unifying the German people under one leader, another motivation for annexation, one which Hitler himself has acknowledged, was the belief that despite all the industrialization and militarization, Germany was still too far behind countries like Britain, France, or the United States to be able to potentially fight a world war. And hence, decided that a good way to make up some of the gap was to annex smaller countries and take and plunder their economies. In that vein, Hitler turns his eye to Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia, much like Poland or Yugoslavia, or frankly any country in Europe that was created or recreated following the Treaty of Versailles, was composed of the former empires of Europe. In Czechoslovakia's case, this meant land from Germany and Austria-Hungary. And within Czechoslovakia, there was one region in particular, the Sudanland, that was of serious concern to Germany. The Sudanland had a German majority, and there was significant support within that German majority to unite with Germany or for increased autonomy within Czechoslovakia. Hitler seized on these Germans and framed them as an oppressed minority who needed to be rescued. The Nazi party in Sudanland, who enjoyed significant support, was instructed to spark unrest and create instability in the country to create the illusion of anarchy. They were also told not to accept any offers of increased autonomy from the Czechoslovakian government or anything that would quell the uprising. The goal was chaos, not a solution. Using this as an excuse, Germany demanded self-determination for the Czechoslovakian Germans and claimed that it would use military force to intervene if these demands were not granted. On May 20th, Hitler presented a plan to invade Czechoslovakia, and on May 30th, he sent a message that war with Czechoslovakia should begin no later than October 1938. The situation in Czechoslovakia progressively worsened until it became a point of concern for the major European powers. On September 15th, Hitler met with British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain to discuss the situation. Hitler demanded self-determination for the German-majority regions of Czechoslovakia and claimed that this would mark his last territorial claim in Europe. Chamberlain then met with French Prime Minister Édouard de Lallier on September 16th, and they came to the agreement that if Czechoslovakia would forfeit all territory with a German ethnic majority, Britain and France would then guarantee the independence of Czechoslovakia. On the 17th, Hitler ordered covert German attacks against Czechoslovakia amped up, killing over 100 Czech soldiers, wounding hundreds, and kidnapping thousands more. On the 18th, Mussolini voiced his support for Hitler in the conflict. Further negotiations in Germany featured a confusing flurry of rapid changes, Hitler upping his demands to a full dismemberment of Czechoslovakia, arranging an outburst to intimidate Chamberlain, and then regaining his composure and accepting an offer of only the Sudanland. These negotiations would include Germany, Britain, France, Italy, and even a representative from the Sudanland Nazi Party, but never Czechoslovakia itself. 
Talks were concluded on September 30th, and all parties signed on to a deal. This pact, known as the Munich Agreement, would have Germany annex the Sudanland and various other areas with large ethnic minorities would have plebiscites at some time in the future to determine their fate. The Czechoslovakian government was informed of this and told it could accept the agreement or face Germany without any aid. Sprung, with no good options available, Czechoslovakia had to agree. Most in Europe were enthusiastic that war had been averted. Chamberlain declared that the agreement marked peace for our time. Sentiments were similar in France, the Low Countries, and the U.S., optimistic that Hitler would remain true to his word. For Czechoslovakia, the agreement was disastrous. Czechoslovakia had constructed extensive fortifications on the German-Sudan border, and without these, they were now powerless to mount any defense against Germany. Of course, Hitler was lying when he said that he had no further territorial claims. On March 13, 1939, German forces invaded and annexed the rest of Czechoslovakia, incorporating some of it into the Reich and creating a pro-German Slovak puppet state with the rest. With this, even the most deeply convinced adherents of appeasement realized that the policy was a failure. Britain and France, who had long hoped that war with Germany could be avoided, began rearmament. The final claim that we'll discuss is Germany's dispute with Poland, which would eventually spark the Second World War. The Polish Corridor, a strip of land between the German border to the west and the German East Prussian state to the east, had been given to Poland by the Treaty of Versailles. The territory granted Poland access to the Baltic Sea and had a largely Polish population, but a not insignificant German minority, particularly in the city of Danzig, which was pro-Nazi. By 1939, Germany had been pressuring Poland to cede the Polish Corridor or grant Germany access to it for several years. Poland refused, understanding that any concessions would merely invite further demands. Negotiations broke down in the spring of 1939, and Hitler seriously began speaking about invasion as a solution to the Polish problem. Poland had a mutual defense agreement with France, but Hitler believed that the French would sit by as they had done before. The final piece of this puzzle was the conclusion of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact on August 23, 1939. Signed between the USSR and Nazi Germany, it created a sort of alliance between the two, including trade agreements. Secretly, however, it also split up Central and Eastern Europe in the spheres of influence. With Hitler's fears about potential Soviet influence assuaged, he set the invasion date for August 26. This was then delayed to September 1st by a British commitment to defend Poland. The time in between was taken up by desperate attempts by Britain and France to find a diplomatic solution, as Germany purposely ignored, danced around, or rejected them. As a final nail in the coffin, small groups of German forces slipped across the Polish border and staged attacks on ethnic Germans in Poland, and then blamed them on the Poles. This provided the quote-unquote evidence for Germany to justify its invasion of Poland as a defensive operation. The invasion plans would see no further delays, and German forces did indeed invade Poland on September 1st, beginning the Second World War. Nazi Germany had flagrantly violated the Treaty of Versailles for the better part of a decade. France and the UK, through naivete and a lack of will, had allowed Germany to rebuild its military rather than heading off the threat when it was weakest. Germany was allowed to seize land from independent nations, the Western Allies stood by what had happened, and even helped Germany to dismember Czechoslovakia. By the time Europe realized that Hitler could not be trusted, Germany was a military juggernaut, and the only thing that could rectify it was a long, bloody war. In the next episode of Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East, we're going to look at the Soviet Union and the left-wing movements in Europe, and how the USSR went from an agrarian backwater fueled by ideology to a massive industrial power bent on expansion. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Until then, my name is Perry Stevens, and I'll see you next week.